Good morning. Today's scripture reading is Romans chapter 4, <clears throat> uh, verse 16 to 25. Therefore the, promise, therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by the grace and may be, by, may be guaranteed to all the Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us to us all. As it is written, I have made you father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that we are not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations just as it had been, just as it had been said to him. So shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to our life for our justification. Thanks, Paul. So, uh, just ra- raise your hand, a little show of hands this morning here. Um, raise your hand if you've, if you've ever gotten angry. Anyone? Yeah, sh- show of hands, a few? A few liars out there? No, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, uh, have you ever um, you've gotten angry and maybe you know, said something to someone that you shouldn't have said? Right? More show of hands? Yep, Okay. Uh, you ever just like just snapped at somebody or said some sort of a cutting remark? Maybe, maybe you're a little more sophisticated in your anger, and so you're able to kind of, uh, you know, kind of make it sound like maybe you're being nice, but you were really being mean, right? A little more clever, a little more sophisticated. And it comes out of this, this anger that you have. So, okay, we've got a, a few people like that. Have you ever, have you ever been stressed out? And anyone's <laughs> stressed out? before, and, and so you get angry, and you say something you shouldn't have said. Okay, so we got a few people like that. Uh, what about this? Show of hands, have you ever been selfish before? Anyone here? Few, okay, yep, few people have been, where you, you decide, you know what, this is what I want, and I don't really care what that means for somebody else. You might not say it out loud, right? You're sort of in denial. You sort of deny that that's actually the thought process that's going on in your mind. Maybe there's only one chocolate chip cookie left, and you come home with your spouse. You've been out together, and you come in, and there's only one left, and you see it, so you make your way in really quick to make sure that you get it before she gets the chocolate chip cookie, right? I mean, do we do, we do this sort of thing? So we have some selfish people. Ever done that before, right? Have you ever, have you ever sort of realized, you know what, sometimes even just the way I've set up my life is a little bit selfish. Not just like a decision here or there, but kind of 
like even the way you've kind of set up your life and the way you live your life, that the reality is that there's often a lack of regard for people other than yourself in just the way that you set up your life, right? Uh, so selfish, we've got some selfish people maybe. Um, how about this? Uh, for those of you who are married, have you, ever, have you ever in your marriage ever, you know, thought about what it would be like to be married to somebody else? And sort of thought about that and maybe even fantasized about that, thinking about what it would be like to be married to somebody else. Why do we do this? Why do we sin? Why do we do these things that we know God would not want us to do? And why do we do these things that we know ultimately are destructive to our own lives and to the lives of others. Today we're continuing in our series on the book of Romans, a series called Good News. And as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, the heart of the good news is that we have a God who loves us on the basis of his grace. That God loves us on the basis of his grace, that he does not... He does not evaluate us ultimately on the basis of what we do. That our relationship with God is not like American Idol or The Voice, right? I've been using that analogy that our, our, our relationship with God is not like the way most of the world is, which is sort of an American Idol, The Voice way in which the world works, which is, what, which is that everybody, everybody in their life is to some extent or another up on stage trying to get somebody to turn their chair around and notice them. They're trying to get Adam or Christina or whoever it is that happened to be the judges to turn around and notice them, to, to, to turn around and say, you're a great parent. To turn around and say, you're doing an incredible job in your career. To, to turn around and say, you're beautiful. To turn around and say, you're doing a great job. Right, that we all sort of live in this world, this American Idol, the voice world, where we are constantly being evaluated by our performance. And what we've seen is that that's not how God evaluates us. That God loves us. He evaluates us on the basis of his grace. And we see this. It pops up again. Oh, let me turn. Oh, I'm not in the right spot here. We find it here in... In verse 16, this is when you, you get to see if the pastor actually knows where the book is in the Bible. I do. Here it is. Okay. Uh, we see this here in verse 16 of our passage, the grace. Grace just keeps popping up. Even when Paul isn't even talking about grace, it just keeps popping up in everything that he says. Verse 16, therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace. And then in verse 25, kind of bookends on this, packet, on this passage here. Grace at the beginning, grace at the end. Verse 25 says, He, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. He was delivered over to death for our sins. In other words, as we saw, God actually, you know, really, if he's a just God, he really should evaluate us on the basis of what we do. That instinct that we have is correct. God ought to evaluate us on the basis of what we do. The problem is that if he does that, we're all in trouble. And so God, because he loves us, God, because he loves us, he died to forgive us of that sin. He took, he took the punishment that we deserve upon himself. He died 
for our sins so that now he no longer evaluates us on the basis of what we do. That's the heart of the gospel, that no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, God is looking upon you. He's looking upon you and he smiles upon you, not because of anything that you have done, but simply because he loves you. We see that's the good news of the gospel, the good news of grace. So the question that then emerges and emerges in this book, the book of Romans, is then how do we respond to that? How are we to respond to this grace? Or better, how do we know that we've really come to experience that grace? How do we know that that grace has begun to work its way into our lives? How do we know that this relationship that God has initiated with us, that we've really received that? What would our response look like if that were the case? What does that response look like? And what we've discovered, what Paul wants us to see over and over again, is that the, the proper response to God's gracious initiative is that we respond with faith, not the works of the law. We respond with the faith, not the works of the law, that, that God initiates with grace, and, and we respond not with the works of the law, because we saw it's, if it's with the works of the law, that actually ends up nullifying grace. That ends up being about what you do. And so Paul says it's by faith, not the works of the law. And what we saw is that when Paul talks about the works of the law, primarily what he's talking about is those, are those religious identity markers, those, those religious activities that we engage in where we say to ourselves, well, because I'm participating in these religious good works, these religious things, then that marks me out as being right with God. And in his day, that were, was things like circumcision. He was do, he, obviously, he came out of a Jewish background. He's working within the Jewish framework. And so the works of the law were these things like circumcision, uh, following certain food laws, uh, observing the Sabbath, and other sorts of religious activities and whatnot. Those were the works of the law, the primarily the works of the law that he was addressing. But we can kind of see how this emerges in our own culture. We kind of create our own works of the law, and, and then we begin to see them as the thing that makes us right with God. So in our day and age, the kind of thing that can become a work of the law is something like going to church, or being a part of a community group, or serving in leadership, or something like that. And we, and we think that because you know, I'm going to church and I'm in the community because I'm doing those things, then that makes me right with God. And Paul says, no, actually. Those aren't the things that, that mark you out as being right with God. Now, as we've seen, it's sort of an odd thing for the pastor to be, you know, well, then what's the point of church, right? And as we've seen, actually what church can do, what religion can do is build your faith. Church, and that's what we're hoping for when we gather together in church and when we gather together in our community groups and we gather together in the, in the things that we do is that it builds our faith in God. And as our faith is built, that's what marks us out as in right relationship with God. So it's, it's not the going to church. It's not that you're in these things that what makes you right with God. It's that these things build faith. And that faith then is what makes us right with God. And the question today is, what is the nature of this faith? What does faith really look like? What do we even mean by this word faith? What is faith? And the way we answer this question, interestingly, I don't know what, what kind of faith is it 
that makes us right with God is the right response to God's gracious initiative is you look at Abraham. That's what Paul wants us to see. You, well, you want to see what we mean by faith? You look at Abraham. And his, his point, actually, when he looks at Abraham, is it's not, it's not so much that Abraham is necessarily the greatest man of faith of all time. Because I think you could actually kind of debate that one. I mean, as we're going to see, there's sometimes you're like, really? Abraham has faith? We're going to see that here in a minute. So it's not so much that Paul's elevating Abraham because he's like the greatest man of faith. He was a great man of faith, but it's not like, like he's the greatest example necessarily. The reason why is because, again, what we've seen throughout this is that what it means to be in right relationship with God is to become a part of the family of Abraham. That's actually what it means. The, 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 the covenant of grace, this gracious initiative that God has given, it came to Abraham, and this is what emerges again here in verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by grace, uh, so that it, excuse me, comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, uh, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, right? So the idea here is that when we, when we have the faith of Abraham, we become part of his family. Uh, Paul will use language later on of being grafted into the tree. Uh, and, and so, again, the reason he's using Abraham is not simply because Abraham is the greatest example of faith. As we're going to see, that's debatable. But it's because when we have the faith of Abraham, now we become a part of the, this, this family that God has come to with grace. We're sort of grafted in, and then because of that, now we are right before God. So if we want to know what this faith is that makes us right with God, we look at Abraham. And what do we discover? What do we discover about this faith of Abraham? And I think you can take this word and really just sum it up with a different word. And that is the word trust. Abraham's faith is a matter of trust. In fact, I would even suggest to you that for the most part, when you read your Bible, if you see the word faith, you can just retranslate it as trust. Now, you might be thinking, well, why doesn't it say trust? And this is kind of an interesting linguistic question. In English, we've got these three words, faith, belief, and trust. And they're all related, faith, belief, and trust are all related, but they're all a little bit different. The interesting thing is that in Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, there's only one word. It's the word pistis, is the noun, and pisteo is the verb. So there's only one word, and so it has a wide semantic range. And so this is actually, I think, why there are some problems emerging in terms of people understanding what this faith is, because this word has this wide range, so it needs to be uh, unpacked or explained. That's one of the reasons we'll see why James ends up having to kind of comment on what this faith is all about. So what I'm telling you, though, is that as we'll see, if you see the word faith, really you could most of the time just translate it as trust. Because that's really, that's really what it's, it's getting at. And so what we need to see here is that Abraham is right before God because he trusts him. It's not mere belief. It's not mere belief. In other words, it's not like God just said, you know, hey, uh, Abraham, do you believe in God? 
Yeah, I believe in God. Okay. I believe in God, right? Uh, you know, Abraham, um, do you believe the right things about God? It's not, even necess- it's not even so much about does he believe the right things about God per se. Uh, you know, does he, you know, if Abraham were to uh, write down his statement of faith, I remember when I was in seminary, they, had, they told me to write down my statement of faith, and they had all these categories that I had to spell out what I believed about these different things. And, you know, if Abra- it would be really interesting to see what Abraham would write down, because the reality is we know very little about what Abraham actually believed. It's remarkable how little there actually is. Uh, we, we don't know, for example, it's, it's kind of interesting how uh, in Exodus chapter 6, in Exodus 6, it suggests that the patriarchs, including Abraham, did not know God by the name Yahweh, that that was something that came later. That's what it seems to say on the surface. Now, it, I would actually suggest in context, it seems like what it's really saying is that, they, that they, the patriarchs didn't know the fullness of who this God was. Because in Genesis, it seems to suggest that maybe he does know his name. So it's a little bit, little bit confusing. But the point is that Abraham did not really know that much about this God. Certainly didn't know, he did not know what became central to the people of Israel about this God. To an Israelite, was absolutely central to who God was, is that he was Yahweh, the God who delivered them from Egypt. That the word Yahweh became associated with salvation and deliverance from captivity in Egypt. And, of course, that happened you know, hundreds of years after Abraham. So Abraham's understanding of who God was is a little bit unclear. So it's not so much that that Abraham, quote, had the right beliefs. Do you believe, like, if you can sign the statement of faith and get all your doctrine right and you believe those things, well, then that makes you right with God. That's not what it is. It's, It's trust. It's trust. And we see that that unfolds Here in these verses, I'll just read them again, beginning in verse 18. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. And maybe I'll just insert the word trust, if that's okay. Therefore, the promise comes by trust, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the trust of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Now, okay, 18, here we go. Against all hope, Abraham, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed or trusted. Abraham in hope trusted and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his trust, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through lack of trust regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his trust and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. Okay, so what's going on here to just kind of, kind of recap the story, Abraham's an old man, right? I think he's about 85, somewhere around there. And his wife is 10 years younger, so she's in her mid-70s. And, and God says, uh, Abraham, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make nation through you, through your line. You're going to have a family, and, and that family is going to grow and bless all nations, right? So he's, he's in his mid-80s, and he's going to have it. it. It comes out later in the whole conversation. Yes, in fact, it's going to be through Sarah, it's going to be through his wife who's in her mid-70s, right? So 
I want you to imagine the kind of trust that would require. It would be a little bit like this. Imagine me in my mid-80s, okay, and God says, Kevin, you are going to be an offensive lineman in the NFL. And I'm like, do you get, God, do you know the, the average age for an offensive lineman? Like, usually, maybe they make it into their 30s. You know, I'm in my 80s. I've got, I'm in a walker. I've never seen a lineman on the field with a walker before. You know, I'm, you know, I'm 50-some years past my offensive lineman playing days. And by the way, when I was in my prime, there was no way I was going to be an offensive lineman. Now, that's what's going on here, right? So, because Abraham, he's in his 80s. Sarah's in her 70s. So, you know, there's no hope there. And she couldn't even have kids when she was in her 20s. And Abraham says, I trust you. You see, he's trusting in what God's going to do. In other words, it's, it's not so much about him believing something about God as much as it is in trusting what God is going to do. Abraham is made right with God because he trusts him. Now, what we need to see is that Abraham's faith is not perfect. His trust is not perfect. It's persistent, though. His trust is persistent, not perfect. I think that must be what it's getting at here in verse 20 because on the surface, if you just read verse 20, you're like, huh? Because it says, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. I think it's got to be pointing at the persistence of Abraham. Because if you go back and you read the narrative, you're like, not so sure about that. Right? So, so for example, um, God <laughs> tells Abraham, I'm going to, through you, through your line, you're gonna, this family is going to come. Okay? So Abraham and Sarah, they end up going to Egypt. And later on, they go to Gerar. This, this happens twice. This scene happens twice. They don't have any kids yet, okay? They don't have any kids, and they go, and Abraham, this is what he does, right? He realizes, so apparently Sarah was pretty attractive. That's what we read from the Bible. And uh, so Abraham, you can tell he's one of these kind of really jealous husbands, really kind of nervous about what's going to happen. You know, like the kind of husband where, you know, the wife doesn't have her own email address. So if they had their own, if they, you know, uh, if Abraham and Sarah were alive today, their email address would be, you know, Abraham and Sarah at gmail.com, right? That, that kind of, so he's clearly that kind of, of a husband. He's really nervous, and, you know, she was attractive, so he was worried about this. And what he was worried about, what he was really worried about, actually, is that if he goes to Egypt, the Pharaoh's going to kill him so that the Pharaoh can then take Sarah as one of Pharaoh's wives, Okay. Now, it's really interesting, like the ethics, the, uh, the whole morality of the Pharaoh was really quite confusing here, because when Pharaoh finds out, so, so here's what he does, right? So Abraham's like, hey, this is what Abraham does. So ladies, tell me, you know, if, if you ever said to yourself, I want, a, I want a husband like Abraham, I want you to rethink that for a minute, because what does Abraham do? They go to Egypt, and he's like, hey, honey, let's just, let's just say that you're my sister, not my wife. Then Pharaoh can take you as his wife, can take you in as one of his many wives, and they won't kill me. Okay, great. What a protector, right? I mean, this is a man standing up for his woman. That's what he does. They go in. He says, oh, she's my sister, right, so that he can live. 
the Pharaoh, Pharaoh finds out, right? He's like, wait a minute, but why didn't you tell me that this is actually your, your wife? And so Pharaoh, this is what's kind of interesting. Pharaoh and then later on Abimelech, they're really worried that, you know, uh, um, that they, they don't want to sleep with somebody who is married. But it seems like Abraham's thing, this is how Abraham perceives it. He's like, but they'll murder, maybe they'll murder me, and then they can murder me, and then it'll be okay for them to be with my wife. I don't really get the morality of that. So somehow it's okay to murder, I don't know, whatever. Point is, Abraham is willing to do this, and what he needed to realize, remember this, he doesn't have any kids yet. So if he's killed, how is God's promise going to become real? You see, in that moment, he was not trusting. We see this. And then, and then later on, in, in chapter 17, the promise comes in, well, in 12 and then in 15. And then in 17, when it really becomes clear it's going to go through Sarah, it says that he laughs at God. He laughs. Oh, yeah, it's going to go through Sarah. So it's clear that Abraham, his trust, it, it, it's not always there. It's not always perfect. That's important for us to realize. Our trust is not always going to be perfect. Abraham's faith was not always perfect. But it was persistent. It was persistent and it was lasting. And we see that it, it comes to full fruition in chapter 22. So moving on in the story, Sarah becomes pregnant, has Isaac, and then Isaac becomes a boy. And then there becomes this test. God puts this test and he says to Abraham, he says, Abraham, I want you to go and kill your son. I want you to kill your son. And it's important to realize that, of course, in the end, he does not kill him, right? So there are all kinds of people who read the Bible, and they're like, what is this all about? What kind of God would tell him to kill his son? And and there's a lot of evidence that suggests that actually in that culture, there were many different religious traditions where they did sacrifice their children. And so the fact that Abraham was told not to sacrifice his son is actually more the point. It's actually God saying, no, that isn't the kind of thing that we do. But the bigger picture throughout all of this is that God is saying, look, let's let's see if you really trust me. Now, admittedly, again, this is over the top. I mean, this kind of idea. I don't know. How can I see if he trusts me? I'll tell him he has to kill his son. It's a little over the top. I agree. It's almost like God channels his inner Quentin Tarantino and just goes over the top. Right? That's kind of how Tarantino does his movies is just completely unnecessarily over the top. It kind of seems a little bit like that. But God is doing this because he wants, he really wants to drive home how important trust is. And Abraham does. Of course, Abraham does this. God stops him from doing it. But then we see the persistence of Abraham's trust. It's not perfect, but it is persistent. And we should think about this. Why is trust so important? Why is it that trust would be the criteria for being right with God? And I think if we think about this just sort of normally, we'll understand why. Is that isn't trust really what matters as the basis of every real relationship? Because that's what we're talking about. It's about being in relationship with God. And isn't it true that trust is the center of any authentic relationship? I think about my relationship with my wife. When I first met her and we got to know each other and we were friends and we were starting dating, you know, I was drawn to her because she was funny, she was interesting, we just connected, like she was just really fun to be around, I was attracted to her, you know, all, all of that. But then when it came to that time when I proposed to her, all of that stuff 
mattered, but what really mattered is do I trust her? And when I realized I do, I trust her, then that's when that relationship could go to that next level. She would say the same thing. She realized she had this amazing man, right, just attractive, wonderful, witty. But when it came down to it, it's do I trust him? Do I trust him? Because trust is the real basis for any genuine relationship. So we shouldn't be surprised that this is what God asks of us. And so the real question here, and and I'm just going to kind of put it this way, is do we trust God? Do you trust him? Do you trust him with your life? Do you trust him with your other relationships? Do you trust him with your career? Do you trust him with your worth and your value? Do you trust him? Because see, here's what happens. When we trust God, it changes the way we live. When we really trust God, it changes the way we live. Listen, mere belief doesn't. Just sort of believing in God, oh, I believe in God. Belief itself will not change the way you live. But really trusting God, that will change the way you live. Again, in anything, believing and trusting in anything. If, you know, hey, Kevin, do you believe that you can take a rocket ship to the moon? Yeah, I believe that. Okay, Kevin, we want to send you on a mission to the moon in a rocket ship. Okay, now I got to wait a minute. Hold a minute. Now it's trust. And just believing that doesn't really affect the way I live. But whether I trust or don't trust is going to affect whether or not I get on that rocket ship or not. So mere belief, you know, and, and this is why this is so crucial, because this is why in our culture you can have believers and unbelievers who don't really look any different. Because mere belief is not really going to change necessarily how you live. It's do we trust God? It's not just, again, it's not, you know, you, you get the Barna research. How many people believe in God? No, the real, the real question should be how many people trust God? And that's a little harder to assess through some sort of survey. What is it that makes us right with God? It's trust, and trust changes the way we live. It affects our choices, right? This is what happens. When Abraham makes bad choices, it's because he's not trusting God. When Abraham makes good choices, it's because he's trusting. So trust versus lack of trust will determine the way you live your life. It changes the way you live your life. Mere belief won't. And this is why, you see, this is what James is getting at in the book of James, when James famously says, faith without deeds is dead. What he's really saying there is that faith without deeds is mere belief. Faith without deeds is mere belief. And then he goes on, he says, look, the demons even believe. Demons believe in God. Demon, you know, it's interesting, you go through the New Testament, and actually the demons seem to know more about Jesus than anybody else does. They're the ones who know who he is. They're the ones whose theology is right. But let me let you in on a little secret. The demons don't have a real good relationship with God. So clearly, it's not just about believing the right things. It's do we trust God, and when we trust God, this will change the way that we live our lives. So I bring us back to this question that I asked at the beginning of the message, and I said, why do we sin? 
Why when we get angry and we lash out at somebody? Why when we, we fantasize about somebody who's not our spouse? Why when we hoard? Why when we're living selfishly? Why do we do this? And it's really simple. It's because in the moment, we aren't trusting God. A person who's in a, a marital relationship, and they find themselves fantasizing about being with someone else. What is it that leads them to do that? It's that they don't trust that God is going to work through whatever challenges you have in your marriage. They're not trusting that being faithful to this commitment is actually what's going to lead to life. It may not look like it in the moment, but down the road it will. Why is it that we when, when, we, when we hoard our resources, when we live a life that is really oriented towards ourselves and leaves others out, why do we do this? It's because we're not trusting God, right? And this is very different than just sort of a religious moralistic approach, right? The religious moralistic approach is like this. Well, um, I shouldn't commit adultery because it's wrong. Here's the problem with the religious moralistic approach. It's really, in the end, probably not going to work. I mean, if if your motivation is simply, well, this is just right or this is just wrong, so I'm not going to do it, the chances are you're going to really struggle with that. But if you're able to say, I trust God in this, well, that will change how you live. Right? You, You can have two people, two people giving financially to the church or to some sort of charity or whatever. One person's giving out of a religious moralistic reason. Like, well, I should give. That's the right thing to do. And then there's the person who says, no, I'm, I'm giving, yeah, it is the right thing to do. It's not that I don't see that. It is the right thing to do, and I trust God. And when you trust God, it won't be this like checking the box, I need to do this good thing, I need to not do this bad thing. It's that you, I trust that living the way God has set out for me is the way to live life. When we get angry. I know this is true for me. If I get angry and I lash out at somebody, in the end, it's because I'm not trusting in God in the moment. For me, oftentimes, if I get angry, I'm stressed out about something. I'm not sure how something is going to work out. Isn't that true? Right? I mean, we say this all the time. Oh, I'm sorry I snapped at you, honey. Things are just really tough at work. Right? Well, what we're saying in that moment is like, I don't trust that God's going to see me through whatever those challenges are. Friends, let me ask you this question. In what areas of of your life are you not trusting God? What are those things? You know as you hear this, if you're honest, what are those areas where you're not trusting God? The heart of the gospel is that we're made right with God through faith, through trusting in Him. Not perfect faith. It's not perfect. We see that with Abraham. The father of all nations, his faith was not perfect. What is it in your life? What area where you're not trusting God? The question which this then just leads to is pretty simple. Why should we trust God? Right? I mean, when you start thinking about this seriously, like I'm going to trust God in this, it's going to lead you to, well, why should I trust Him? And the answer is found in verse 25. 
He, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Or he was raised to life because of our justification. We can trust in God because of the gospel. We can trust in God because we have a God who loves us so much that he came and he died on a cross to forgive us of our sins. You see, sometimes what we aren't trusting in, when we lack trust, it's often in one of two directions. Either we don't trust that God really loves us, or we don't trust that he has the power to do what we need him to do. Those are the two ways, and they, 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 they kind of go in and out. But sometimes we don't, we don't trust that he loves us. We don't trust that he values us. So I'm, not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure he's going to see me through this because I don't know that he should. I mean, I look at my own life and I see what I've done. I'm like, why would God want to help me out? And so we don't trust him because we don't trust that he really loves us. But when you look at the gospel, when you look what God has done in Jesus, you realize he loves you no matter what you've done. And sometimes we don't trust God because we wonder, does he, does he really have the power or has he even demonstrated his power to actually bring help and healing and deliverance? And the answer is he raised Jesus from the dead. He's shown victory over death. There is no greater power that you can have. And when we put our faith in that, when we trust in the resurrection of Jesus, what we're really doing is we're trusting in what, what that points to. And that is that because God raised Jesus from the dead, that anticipates what he's going to do for all who put their trust in him. And we see the evidence. He raised Jesus from the dead, and this shows us this is a God who has victory over death. And so no matter what I'm facing, he can overcome this. Friends, I would just encourage you to take whatever it is in your life, Whatever area of your life that you're not trusting God, just bring it before the cross. Bring it before the gospel. And realize you have a God whom you can trust. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you this morning and we praise you for the gospel. God, I pray that we would not allow ourselves to be distracted from seeing the centrality, the simple centrality of what is revealed to us in the person of Jesus. You, a good, loving, and all-powerful God, have come for us. God, our problem, we just don't think big enough. We're too caught up in our own world and we don't realize the life and the hope that is available to us in you. God, I pray that we would submit these areas of our lives to you. I I, I think of those here this morning who are not trusting you with their marriage. And it's leading them to live and act in ways that are harmful to them and to others. God, I pray that they would submit that to you. God, I pray for those who are not trusting you with their career, not trusting you with where, how they're going to provide for their family and provide for themselves. And God, I just pray that they would relax. Whatever they're facing, you're going to see them through it. God, I pray for those who are not trusting you with their reputation. They're living their whole lives just trying to get Christina and Adam to turn their 
chairs around and say, you're great. God, I pray they would trust in the cross that you've already said, I love you enough to give my life for you. God, as we trust in you, may we see the fruit and how this changes our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.